Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from our series entitled Imitate, a study on the book of 1 Thessalonians. For more information about CBC or how to get plugged in, visit us on the website, cbcsavannah.com. We're back in 1 Thessalonians this morning, chapter 5. So if you got your Bible, flip in it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're um, continuing in our series called Imitate. Kind of got thrown off by this hurricane. So I'm going to recap while y'all are flipping there. Um, Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica, region in, or a city in Macedonia. And it's a city that was filled with opposition to the gospel. So when Paul planted this church, it did not take long for him to be driven out of town because people hated him and they hated Christ. And now he's writing to these new believers who are in the midst of terrific opposition. Okay, they are being prodded at and poked at from every side. And, and as new believers, they're doing pretty good with it. Okay, they're, they're staying the course. They're, they're doing well in lots of areas. But Paul is writing this to uh, encourage them, to build them up, and to answer some questions that they had. Okay, and some of the questions that they had were around this idea of the return of Christ, the day of the Lord. And, and three weeks ago, and what I think was, and I've, I've told Bill this, but probably my favorite service that we've ever had at CBC. I was just so affected by Bill's preaching on the last part of chapter four and Ethan's leadership in, in worship. But Bill reminded us that this is a reality, that Jesus Christ is going to return, that he is going to call the church to himself, and he's going to restore things to the way that they ought to be. He's going to set up his rule and his reign. He's going to right every wrong. There's going to be no more sin. There's going to be no more suffering. That's what's coming for the believer. And it is a reality. Thank you, Rad. I like that. Active participation. Look at this. Feels, hey, y'all, it feels good when somebody just amens you. Okay. Thank you, Greg. Come on. All right, let's try it. A non-elder next time. These guys are making the young buck feel good. Okay, so these guys hear about the coming of the Lord, and they're stirred up by it. Okay, so Paul is continuing with that theme this week. And for the Christian, you see guys hearing about the coming of the Lord is like a little kid hearing about Disney World. Okay, when a little kid, for the first time, hears about Disney World, there is one question that's coming, and it's coming fast. What's the question? When are we going? Right, since my oldest daughter has heard about Disney World, she has asked me hundreds of times, Daddy, when do we get to go to Disney World? When do we get to go to Disney World? And here's what I've told her. I said, honey, I don't know when we're going, but we're gonna go one time. We're going, when your sisters get old enough to enjoy it, we're gonna go one time, and then we're never gonna go again. Okay, and some of you guys who have like the Disney season pass right now who are kind of judging me, you just need to lay off because it, it could be worse. My, my best buddy's dad, when they were growing up, he told them that Disney World was a conspiracy theory. <laughs> it's like the Tooth Fairy, son. It just doesn't exist. So it's what he tells his kids. It's not until 13 they realize Disney World is a real thing and they don't want to go anymore. So I'm thinking, man, that is that's good parenting. But all that is beside the point, right? When, when people hear about the Magic Kingdom and Space Mountain, when little kids hear about this, they want to go. When do we get to go is the question they're asking. And for the Christians in Thessalonica, when they heard about the reality that Jesus 
Christ is coming back, they've got one question. When's it going to happen? When's he coming? And today in our text, we get to hear the answer to that question. But we don't just get to hear the answer to that question. In fact, we get a whole lot more. What we get in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 through 11, is Paul masterfully pastoring us through this topic of the day of the Lord. Just taking us through it. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see him remind us of what that day is going to be like. Okay, when it's going to happen. We're going to see him redirect us to what really matters in the meantime. And then he's going to close by reassuring the believers of what lies ahead. So those are the things we're looking at. Three R's, okay? A refocus, a reminder, a redirection, and then a reassurance. So let's, let's come to the text, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. This, my friends, is the Word of God. The reading of the Word of God is the most important part of this entire sermon. In our laps, we have Almighty God's words to humanity. We want that to weigh on us. Two billion people do not have this gift of the Word of God. Let's hear it. Let's submit to it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. Okay, so the first thing that we get from Paul in verses 1 through 3 is a reminder. Okay, a reminder. He reminds us of this day of the Lord. And he begins by saying, now concerning the times and the season, brothers, you don't have any need for any, anything to be written to you. So when you're reading your Bible and you're reading through Paul, whenever you see this little phrase, now concerning, what he's doing is he's answering a question. So these guys are asking, hey, when's he coming back? When, when's this day of the Lord is going to happen? In fact, they're going to still be asking this question in 2 Thessalonians. They're chomping at the bit. When are we going to Disney? And, and Paul has already told them, everything's going to tell them again today. Right? That's why he says they have no need for anything to be written to them. But patiently, pastorally, he reminds them. Verse 2. You yourselves are fully aware. I've already told you. All right, we've already been through this. You're fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, briefly, when you see this phrase, day of the Lord, in the New Testament, it's not referring to a specific 
single day. It's, it's referring to a period of time okay, that begins with what Bill started talking about a few weeks ago, believers being caught up, Christ's reign. It's all going to result in a final judgment, which is what he has in view here. So this day of the Lord is coming, and, and Paul gives us really three descriptions in verses two and three of how this is going to come. Okay, and to support our Baptist friends, we've got some more alliteration for you. Okay, so three S's this time. Three things we know about the day of the Lord that Paul tells us. He's reminding these guys of. First, it's a secret. When it happens, is a secret. It's coming like a thief in the night. When Jesus talks about this over and over and over again, Jesus talks about how his return will be like a thief in the night. This is Jesus' language, not Paul's. Thief, good thief at least. Let me coach you on how to be a good thief, okay? A good thief doesn't shoot you a text and say, hey, I'll expect me between 2 and 2.15. I'm looking for electronics and antiques. Be on the lookout for me. No, he comes secretly. He comes stealthily when nobody knows. Jesus says that his return will be like that. Paul reminds them that his return will be like that. But it's not just a secret when Christ will return. It will also be sudden. Verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. So we don't know when it's going to happen, but we do know that when it happens, it will come suddenly. Suddenly like labor pains for a pregnant woman. Okay, it will rush upon us. Now some of you ladies know about sudden labor. With our third, I learned about sudden labor. It seems like our third was in the womb for about three and a half years. And finally, a uh, few weeks, a couple weeks, not a few, a couple weeks after the due date, we go in to uh, have labor-induced. So we go in, start Victoria on the drip, and uh, we're a handful of hours in, and there's absolutely no movement. And I'm thinking, man, my stomach's kind of growling. I'm hungry. So I head over to this McDonald's over here on Paulson, you know, right next to Candler, not going far, get me a little quarter pounder. And, and as I'm pulling up to the drive-thru, my phone rings. And Victoria says, baby, you better get back fast. Labor had come on suddenly. And I go back, I park, I sprint up to the room, and within about three minutes of me getting back up to the room, that baby's lying on Victoria's chest. Okay? So that is sudden. And, and what Paul says is, while people are saying there's peace and security, life is good, let me go get me a Big Mac, then suddenly, like labor pains, like a thief in the night, so it will, be a, it will be secret, it will be sudden, and last, we see in verse 3, it will be severe. Verse 3 says that this will be a day of sudden destruction, and people will not escape. Okay, so who is Paul talking about that will not escape here? Well, we know he's not talking about believers because he begins this contrast between believers and unbelievers in verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. But you are not in, in darkness, brothers, believers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. No, the day of the Lord will not be sudden and severe for believers. But it will be sudden and severe for those who are in darkness. For those who do not know Christ. And friends, even this phrase, the day of the Lord, Paul takes it straight from the Old Testament. 
And, and if you have time this week, and you just do a study of the day of the Lord, this is judgment language. And it is frightening. Adjectives like agony and distress and doom and destruction and devastation. People being commanded to wail. It is horrific stuff. Verse 9 in this passage calls it a day of wrath. And friends, lots of us don't like talking about the wrath of God. We shy away from this subject. Right? Maybe we're embarrassed by it. Maybe we think people are going to be offended by it. A lot of us, I think, just don't understand it. Right? When we think of wrath, we think of somebody losing control or flipping out. And, and maybe you have been the object of someone's wrath before, and you think, how could a good God ever demonstrate wrath and it be a good thing? But friends, this thread of God's wrath in the Bible is consistent, start to finish. Jesus talks about it more than anybody else. So, so what does the Bible mean when it, talk about, when it talks about God's wrath? Let me read a quote from J.I. Packer. He helps us understand so well. It says, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ennoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in his world be morally perfect? Surely not. But it is precisely this adverse reaction to evil, which is a necessary part of moral perfection, that the Bible has in view when it speaks of God's wrath. Friends, wrath is God's appropriate response, his good response, his right response to wickedness. And for those who are in darkness, for those who have chosen darkness, who have loved darkness rather than light, like Jesus says, who have rejected God's salvation through his Son, that day will be secret, sudden, and severe. And they will not escape. But it won't be that way for the believer. Verse 4, okay? It will not be that way if your faith is in Christ. He goes with the contrast. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Okay? Believers are not in darkness. And because, friends, we are not in darkness, that day is not going to surprise us or overwhelm us. Okay? We don't know when it's going to happen, but we do know that when it does happen, we are not going to be shocked. We are going to be vindicated. All who have looked on us in scorn and in scoffing and made fun of us because we believe in a crucified God and a risen Savior and one who is coming back on the clouds of heaven, we will look at him and we will say, it's just like he said. He's coming back for us because he's doing what he said. And so that will not be a day of surprise for us. It will be a day of joyful vindication. Just like he said would happen. So that's Paul's reminder about the return of Christ. It's all he gives us. And, and here's why it's all he gives us. Because he is less concerned about when Jesus is coming back, and he's more concerned about how we live in light of his return. And that's what he redirects us toward right in verse 5. 
Okay, this is our redirection. And this is what I mean by Paul just pastoring us through this topic. Notice how he changes the attention. He, he points us to the, who we are in Christ. He shows the Thessalonians their identity. And here's what he says in verse 5. For you're all children of the light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So again, this, this chasm between light and darkness, this contrast between unbeliever and believer starts getting wider and wider. And he uses this light imagery to explain it. Now, light imagery in the Bible, not hard to understand. Okay? Light is good, darkness bad. In the beginning, God says, let there be light, and there's light. And it's good. It's pure. Right? It, it allows us to see things as they are. And God loves this imagery so much that 1 John says that God is light. And in him, there's no darkness at all. When Jesus comes on the scene, it says he's the light of the world. The prophecy from Isaiah comes true that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And then John chapter 1 says the true light which enlightens all men has come into the world. He gives this invitation that whoever would follow me will walk in the light. Will have the light of life be called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For the ones who believe were transferred from the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son with whom we share in the inheritance of light. Right? God himself at our conversion, the one who said, let light shine out of darkness, 2 Corinthians says, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we believe, friends, we become children of light. Children of the day. And what Paul is saying is, because you are now children of light, live like it. Just like Jesus said, shine your light before men. Just like Paul told the Ephesians, now walk as children of the light. Don't, don't worry about when Jesus comes back. Don't worry about times and seasons. Worry about living as children of the light right here and right now. And, and here's what he does. He gives a negative side to this in verses 6 through 8, and he gives a positive side to this in verses 6 through 8. Because walking in the light is, is about what we don't do, but walking in the light is also about what we do. And so he starts with this negative side, verses 6 through 8. What's it look like to walk in the light in light of Christ's return? Verses 6 and 7. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, they're drunk at night. So more imagery. Paul's like on this, he's in this poetic mood when he's writing this. He had to have been. Usually he's specific with us. But he's using all this figurative language. Don't, don't live sleepy lives. Don't, don't live drunk lives. And he contrasts those things against being awake and being sober. What's, what's he mean by this imagery? Well, when you're asleep, you're unconscious of reality. You don't know what's going on. You're unprepared. When you're drunk, you're incoherent. Right? You're, you're unaware. You do foolish things. You make foolish choices. You live for what's right in front of you. And, and so to live a life, go through life sleepy and to go through life drunk is to live a life that's unaware of and unprepared for what's coming. It, it's to live life with spiritual indifference. Or, or like he said in verse 3, to find our peace and security in the world. And friends, we, we need to lean in right here, Okay? We need to lean in at this point in the sermon because if there is any area that the American church is vulnerable, it's right here. 
going through life sleepy, going through life complacent, going through life unaware of spiritual realities, living for what's right in front of us. And and so let me read a quote by John Piper that I hope will kind of rouse us. He says, The greatest enemy of hunger for God, or for our purposes we could say the greatest enemy of living as a child of light, okay, is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, and he's referring to the parable in Luke 14 here, it's a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. It's finding our peace and security in this world. And friends, we're vulnerable. That's why, in some ways, it's the kindness of God to send a hurricane, take away Netflix for a couple days. (laughs) Right? We realize we can't live without the security all around us. But don't our hearts get attached to those things? Don't we start living for those things, for those worldly comforts that are good gifts? They're good gifts, but they lull us. They lull us to sleep. And if we're not careful, Satan's going to use, use those things to make us ineffective, to, to walk, as it were, in darkness, even though we're children of light. And y'all, when we allow this to happen, it's just inconsistent with our identity. God is still going to give grace to us. Right? He's still going to save us, but we're going to miss out. And we might do damage to the name of God, right? So think, think about the Mighty Ducks. Everybody know the Mighty Ducks? Okay, one of the top 200 best sports movies of all time, easily. That's why so many of you joyfully identified with it. All right, in, in the Mighty Ducks, there's a guy named Adam Banks. Adam Banks is the best player for the Hawks, okay? The Hawks are the, the bad guys. They're the best team. Banks is the best player on the best team, and he loves being a Hawk, but they redraw the district lines, and Banks has to come play for the Ducks. Okay, so he goes to play for the Ducks, and now he's got this duck uniform on, and he still wants to be a hawk. And so he's doing all his old hawk stuff, hanging out with all his old hawk buddies, having all his old hawk attitudes. And and what happens is he hurts himself, and he hurts the team because he's a duck, but he's acting like a hawk. What we need Banks to do is to start quacking, okay? We need him to embrace his identity as a duck. And friends, as children of light, we need to embrace our identity. We belong to the light. We belong to the day. And we need to live like it. That's what Paul is getting after right here. So negatively, we don't go through life sleepy and drunk and complacent. Positively, what do we do? Let's revisit verses 6 through 8. It's not sleep as others do, but what? Let us keep awake and be sober. Those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So here's how we shine our light, as it were, until that day. We keep awake and we are sober. What does he mean? We're attentive. We're alert. We're ready. We're listening. We're eager. 
We're prepared. We're clear-headed. Okay, th- think of, if you're a sports guy, think of a ba- that backup quarterback who every week he prepares. Every week he's watching film. Every week he's making the throws. He's going through the routines so that when his moment comes, he's ready. Okay, th- that's what Paul has in view. Well, he doesn't have American football in view here, but that's the idea. Okay? We are to go through life awake. We're to go through life sober-minded. And, and, and we're going to get to talk about how to do that specifically next week. Paul gives these final instructions that we'll see next week that are very, very specific on how we go through life awake and sober. But we see kind of his general instruction um, in verse 8. And what he instructs us to do as children of the light is put on spiritual armor, as it were, the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So what's he after? He is after our lives as Christians being characterized by these fundamental Christian virtues. Faith, right? Trust in God. Love, doing the best for others that we can. Hope, right? Longing for the coming reality of our salvation. He wants us to be characterized by these things. And and y'all, this is a, a neat passage because it's so simple. Sometimes I'm overwhelmed by how simple the Christian life is. At the very beginning of this letter, Paul commends the Thessalonians because of their work of faith and their labor of love and their steadfastness of hope, chapter 1, verse 3. And now at the end of the letter, he's just bookending it, saying, hey, just keep, keep at it. More and more. Faith, hope, love. It should char- characterize us. And, and y'all, if Paul was pastor in this church, I think he would do the same thing with us. I think he would look around at evidences of grace in this church and he would commend us. He would commend you because so many of you live lives of faith and of love and of hope. And then I think he would encourage us and just say, y'all, more and more, more and more be characterized by these things. And so I'd love to imitate Paul this morning and just highlight a few instances that are so commendable among us of faith and of love and of hope. Um, This week, the elders got to spend time with some of the deacons who shared about some of the things that they're doing. And I was struck by the faith of these men. I was struck by it because they are swarming all over this city, serving people, and they want to be anonymous doing it. And they're doing it because they have faith in the Word of God that the greatest is the one who serves, and that there's a reward coming for those who serve in secret. And after this storm, y'all, you don't need a title. You don't have to be a deacon to get that commendation. So many of you guys, because of your faith in Christ, you've just been serving people. And it is awesome. It is evidence of your faith in Christ. Y'all, let's do that more and more. And, And I look around this congregation, and I see love. College students, I got a shout out for some college students. Yes, Corey, Corey, you like that, don't you, Bob? (laughs) Y'all, some of these college students are consistently sharing their lives with non-believing friends, consistently sharing the gospel with non-believing friends, opening up the word of God with non-believing friends, and people are believing. Y'all, people are being brought from death to life because of y'all. This is good, and it's because you love them, and it's the most loving thing you can do for anybody. To offer him Christ. There's, there's a guy in our congregation, business guy, 
would not want me to share this, so I didn't even tell him I was going to do it. I'm not going to say his name. I spied on him about six weeks ago, picking up a single mom and her family who live here in the neighborhood, just taking him out to lunch. And he's not doing it out of obligation. He's not doing it out of charity. He's doing it because they are his friends, and he loves them. And I'm thinking, dude, what can take two people from two different racial backgrounds, two different experiences, and just break down walls? Well, the love of Christ can. And this guy's modeling it. Together we're modeling it. More and more. I, I look around this congregation, and I see people who are adopting and who are fostering. Why? Because God has poured out your lo his love in your heart. And, and you just want to extend love to somebody you don't even know. This is awesome, you guys. And these are the things that should continue to characterize us. And hope. Man, some of y'all's stuff got crushed in that storm. And some of y'all are facing way bigger storms than hurricanes. And some of y'all are victims of injustice. And you continue to hope. You're not letting your circumstances drive your joy because you're hoping in a risen Savior. And friends, I just want you to know, if that's you, and that is some of y'all, it shines bright. And it glorifies God. And so more and more and more, let's be people who are characterized by faith and by love and by hope. Right? The hope of what's coming. And that leads us to our last point. That's where Paul takes these people. And friends, I could not be more excited about this last point. Okay, because here's what Paul does now. He's reminded us of what's going to happen when Christ returns. He's redirected us toward what, what to focus on in the meantime. And now he reassures us of what's coming. And it is sweet reassurance. Verse 9. This is how Paul motivates the Thessalonians to, to live lives of faith, hope, and love in light of that day. Verse 9. Listen to what it says, y'all. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this needs to comfort us and this needs to motivate us. But what we need before either of those things can happen is the reality of this to just set on us for a minute. Friends, you need to feel this. Okay, you need to sense the truth of this. This is reality, okay? And here's what the Bible tells us very, very clearly. It says that we all deserve the wrath of God. It's appropriate, okay? And here's why. And please own this. Please own this. If you hadn't heard anything all day, please hear this. We have all chosen darkness rather than light. We have all rejected God. We have. God, the universe's authority, okay, the maker and sustainer of all things, we have personally rejected him and offended him. We have hated people that he made. Uh, of course we deserve his wrath. Our objective moral evil appropriately deserves his judgment. But friends, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. Okay, how are we going to obtain this salvation if we deserve wrath? Well, salvation, my friends, look at the text. 
is through our Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just speak to you this morning. If you're here, if, you're, if you don't know Christ, we're so pumped you're here. Okay? And for us, Sunday mornings are like a family meeting. But we want to say welcome to you. We also want to invite you in on how, we can, how you can experience what we have. Okay? And here's what the, the Bible is addressing us this morning. God is addressing us through his word. And here's what he's telling us. He's saying that there's salvation from this wrath available through Jesus Christ. Okay, Jesus Christ, my friend, is the eternal Son of God. He truly came into human history, and He came to save us. He came because He knew that guilty humanity had chosen darkness rather than light, and He came to solve that problem for us. And let me tell you how He did it. Verse 10, He died for us. Okay, so salvation is through Jesus Christ who died for us. Us. And friend, what I just want to hold out to all of us this morning is that these words, Jesus Christ died for us, they cannot be searched out enough. They cannot be explored enough. And so believer, let me just remind you, and unbeliever, let me invite you and in how you might escape the wrath of God. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came to earth and He came to bear our wrath. He lived a perfect life, and one Friday afternoon in 30 A.D., he is nailed to a wooden cross outside of Jerusalem. But his suffering, friends, is not just physical suffering. Because here's what was happening on that cross. On that cross, the full force of God's fierce anger towards sin. His hatred of sin. His pain because of sin, his offense at sin, was placed onto Jesus Christ in all its force. And Jesus Christ exhausted it all. One, one preacher described it this way. Imagine that we're standing 100 yards from a dam that is 10,000 miles wide and 10,000 miles high. And with every sin committed, the pressure grows greater and greater and greater until all of a sudden, it breaks. And the full force of that water is coming at us and as if we can even begin to feel the spray coming up on us, the ground opens up and swallows it all. And there's no penalty left to be paid. Friends, Jesus of Nazareth took the full cup of God's furious wrath and he drank it and he flipped it over and he said, it is finished. There is no wrath left for the believer. This is why we say that Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 10, delivers us from the wrath to come. Friends, this is why we stand and sing and some of us cry when we sing till on that cross when Jesus died. The wrath of God was satisfied. You see, Jesus of Nazareth endured all the wrath that we deserve so that we could only ever experience the love from God that he deserves. And that's exactly what we see in the rest of verse 10. Look at the rest of verse 10. This is great news. Okay, Jesus Christ died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So notice here, and stay with me, not only did Jesus save us from something, he saved us to something. Okay? Not only has he saved us from wrath, he saved us to something. Now, what is that something? So that, right, 
Whether we are awake, that is alive at his return, or asleep, that's no longer alive when he returns, we might live with him. Now, y'all, the Bible's full of these little phrases that are just gold. And you want them to rattle around in your heart and in your mind all week, all month. You want, to, you want them to change you. And this little phrase, with him, this is gold. I just want you to think about this. Think about, um, think about that person in your life that you just want to be with them. But because of their value to you, because of the quality of their way of life, you just want to be with that person. Maybe it's a, a husband or a wife. Maybe it's a parent or a grandparent. Maybe it's a best friend. Maybe it's a hero who's just kind of larger than life. Doesn't matter what you do with them. Doesn't matter where you go. You just want to be with that person. Friend, Jesus Christ died for you so that you might live with him. Would you just think about who he is for a minute? Okay, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Okay, he is the fountain and source of all things good, of all things beautiful, of all things enjoyable. He is the one who knows you so deeply, deeper than you know yourself, and he loves you anyway. He's the one who loved you enough to lay down his life for you. And why did he do it, my friend? So that you personally, I mean, insert your name, so that you might live with him. Think about what he has saved us to. Friends, that is our peace and security. That Christ died for us so that we might live with him. Friends, we're not just saved from wrath. We're not just saved to heaven. We're not just saved to a new glorified creation. We're not just saved from suffering. We are saved to Jesus Christ. And there is none more enjoyable than Jesus Christ. It's no wonder why Paul ends with verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. You're darn right we're going to encourage each other and build one another up. How could we not? In a world where we got hurricanes and health problems and cancer and crooked politicians, we have a hope that cannot be shaken. We have a hope that overcomes the world. Friends, God has not... You clap for God. God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Y'all, Jesus is coming back. It's going to happen, right? Just like, just like he said it was. It's a secret when it does happen, and for those who don't believe, it's going to be sudden and severe. And if that's you, if you're in that camp that doesn't believe this morning, I would just appeal to you, come to this God who died for you. I mean, you, everything you're looking for, my friend, is found in him. I know it sounds crazy. It is. Come to him. So that that day for you won't be a day of sudden and severe de destruction. It'll be a day of salvation. And for us, you guys, in the meantime, let's not find our peace and security in the world. Let's be awake. Let's be sober. Let's live lives that are characterized by faith and by love and by hope. Let's walk as children of the light. 
Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a good and loving God. So good and so loving that you would plan to come to our rescue when we just don't deserve it at all. Lord, and when you when you would want us, God, I mean, you want us to be with you. You're not just sparing us. It's not just a business transaction. You're welcoming us as children. You're adopting us into your family. We thank you for your love to us, Lord God. Lord, I pray for any who are here who just don't know you. I pray that they would find salvation in you. I pray they put their faith and their trust in you. Lord, and I pray for us who are believers that we wouldn't live sleepily. We don't want to be complacent. Rouse us, Lord God, to be sober and awake, to live lives of faith, hope, and love. We need that. We want that. Would you help us by your Spirit? And Lord, now you deserve our worship. So I pray that you would compel us to give it to you. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.